Back when watch stores had full windows, they noticed that nobody appeared to want to buy their watches because it felt like it wasn't precious or exclusive or hard to get. But when they started having empty windows, they recognized that people believed that their products were harder to get and thus, if you didn't buy something that was available, your chance to buy anything at all would go away. And I wonder, as supply chains recover and watches become more available, what this is going to be like. Are we going to return to fully stocked windows or are we going to continue to see some type of exclusivity ritual? I feel like the industry got so addicted to this, they're going to try to hold on to this scarcity game for as long as possible. This week on A Blog to Watch Weekly, we take to the skies with Ariel, Rick and David. We go Mac 2 with our hair on fire with the new Breitling Cosmonaut. We check out the two S's in Tissot while headed out to sea in a flat spin with the new dive watch from Hamilton. The new Bremont Jaguar makes us feel the need for speed. And finally, we review the target-rich environment that is the Oak Collection. And we might just talk about Top Gun Maverick. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. I'm joined as ever by Ariel and David. How are you both gentlemen? Watched out. You watched out? (laughs) I've spent about 30 hours in the last week talking watches with people, which is... Maybe about average, but it's, it's been a lot. We've done two events back-to-back here in Los Angeles. Been fantastic, but just the level of social fatigue. First, London, which was fantastic, but just watch conversation endlessly. And then coming back, immediately an event, uh, more events, podcasts. I feel like my, my job right now is professionally, maybe more so than ever, to like physically talk about watches. I'm sure the world is really sympathetic to you yeah, playing yeah. out your, oh, yeah. uh, your love of watches as a job. I can imagine everyone sitting in an office listening to this going, poor Ariel, it must be such it's a shame. It's fatiguing. You know, you see athletes, you're like, <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be great to like run up and down a basketball court you know, all day for your job? But it's hard to do. It's very physically demanding. Yeah, the violin is low literally this small okay all right (laughs) (laughs) what people do want to know though ariel is in our not quite regular feature yet of a blog to watch weekly watches watches i don't know whatever we call the film thing what what movies did you watch in the plane on the way to london oh my gosh um what movies did i see on the way to london and was there any watch content okay i had i I have to see i saw this weird movie that had was channing tatum the like that Lost Island or Sandra Bullock, I think. Brad Pitt was in it. I mean, Brad Pitt was wearing a Breitling in there. And there was a, like, it was a Bulgari thing where he's wearing oh. a, a, a Diagono. And then at some point, the camera goes on the watch. And I remember in the plane, like, stopping it, trying to see the exact version of the Diagono <laughs> it was. It was this three-hand version. And he tries to trade the watch for a trip on a moped. And he's like, it's good. It's a Bulgari. And I was like, how did, like, how did Bulgari get that entrance? Of course, because, again, Brad, Brad Pitt had a bit of a cami. He wasn't in that long. But, again, of course, wearing Breitling. So I remember seeing that. What did I see on the way back? Oh, and then I saw the Steve Martin and Martin Short series, Only Murders in the Building. I don't think there was any watches. No, there might have been one somewhere. There was a watch somewhere there. Good show. David, how was your week? It was great. I'm trying to think about the movies I've seen, but my memory is not wired in a way that allows me to to memorize any sort of movie or title. But there was this kind of gangster kind of movie from, I don't know, the 80s or something. I don't remember any of it, to be honest. Only (laughs) the fact that they were wearing modern Rolexes. So they were <laughs> wearing like all gold Rolex Submariner or whatever, but definitely sort. It sounds like a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah, probably. 
right? Yeah, exactly. Source from the last five years, but they, oh, we are totally in the 80s and I'm wearing this old gold Submariner. You know, I could see the, the white lugs and the ceramic vessel and all that, and I was like, that's just wrong. Well, I, I, this all just leads me to the excuse that I also was in London this week to see Top Gun. Plenty of watch content in that, but the challenge to anyone that's listening is, can you identify the watch that Jennifer Connolly was wearing? Because when we were at IWC at Watches and Wonders, we were informed that everybody was wearing IWC except Tom Cruise, who was wearing Porsche design. Because of the original, mm. right? At which he was, because of, of the original. But it looked very much to me like Jennifer Connolly was wearing a Rolex, the one with like a plum dial. So anyone who's seen it so the movie had nothing interesting except jennifer connelly what no that's not strictly true okay <laughs> that was the highlight apparently <laughs> don't put words in my mouth <laughs> to be fair it was a very good movie and it was a suitably big cinema it was a cinema in leicester square it was packed to the gunnels and there was lots of whooping and cheering and hollering at suitable points, especially when the line dropped lines from the previous movie. So it was a nostalgia trip, although it did bear a strikingly similar resemblance without giving away any plot spoilers to Star Wars. So I don't know, it was like Star Wars on an aircraft carrier. So there you go. But it was very, very good. It was very, very much Was worth. the force in it? You know what? It kind of was. It kind, Well, there was the G-force. But yeah, it was. <laughs> there was kind of, yeah. Without giving it away, there, there was almost an identical scene to Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> sort of speaking into his helmet, <laughs> going, you can do it. Okay. Use the force, look. Did they have lightsabers? I can confirm... As a plot spoiler, that there were no lightsabers. Oh, okay. It's not quite like Top Star Gun. Wars, then. It's not quite like Star Wars. There was kind of a Death Star. There were certainly exhaust ports, but I'll leave the plot spoilers at that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's right. A big part of Star Wars was the sort of dogfighting and the flying yeah. scenes and stuff like that. Yes. So, so there you go. So, in the same way that Star Wars was a Western in space, Top Gun Maverick is a Star Wars and an aircraft carrier. But okay, so go. were there any any nice modern specific ones? You said everyone there was wearing IWC. Like, were they nice ones? Did they? Could you see them? Everyone's got a different one on. So any pilot's watch, any watch in the modern collection from IWC, I think gets a look in in the movie. Oh, so a- it's like a whole catalog. Oh yeah, yeah. Every so some product placement city. Nice and confusing. And and there was some very, you know, Tom Cruise holds Jennifer Connolly's hand in such a way that from a distance you can still see the watch that she's wearing and the watch that he's wearing in a really awkward you know, kind of way they're holding each other's hands. That's hilarious. It's, 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 a, it's a bit weird. <laughs> and some of, the, some of the flight school scenes, every one of the pilots with her hand sitting in the desk is showing off their IWC. Okay. So do you recommend it? Oh, yeah. 10 out of 10. Absolutely blast. Oh, Especially okay. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely go and watch it. And then go to the IWC boutique. Okay. And bring your <laughs> IWC if you have one. Bring your Top Gun. Yeah. Stroke it gently while watching the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. And apparently they will let you in for free if you're wearing an IWC. If you just go to the IWC boutique, they'll give you a ticket and you can just go along. So allegedly. Allegedly. allegedly? Okay, it's worth a shot. Worth a shot. Always worth a try. However, I did also go to... At New Bond Street 
and experience some of the how the ads are behaving at the moment and other uh, ads in london yeah and how, how they treating you like a gentleman finally well i no <laughs> no not at all oh so i specifically went down with no mechanical watch on i specifically went into the ads with my sleeves rolled up and an apple watch on my wrist that sounds risky to see what the level of engagement was the best experience by far while wearing only an apple watch when you say good, like, define what a bad experience would be like. I will define a bad experience shortly. Okay. So, <laughs> the best experience, which is probably the best experience I've ever had of not buying something, was in the A. Lang and Zona Boutique in New Bond Street. Absolutely top drawer. Just brilliant reception, went in, chatted, they broke out some of the big guns, got to try some stuff on, look under our look. Just really, really welcoming when, you know, they had no expectation that you were going to buy something. But they knew that anyone coming in could one day be buying in a lagging zona and that's how you build a customer base. I then went into another boutique. I will not name, but needless to say, I went in to try on a £1,600 Longines and could not have felt that the salesperson was less interested in breaking out this Longines in this multi-brand boutique or knew, knew less about it. I mean, they didn't know anything about it. It was a special edition for the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham and they really didn't seem terribly interested. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that like the mid-range luxury is actually more snobby than the high-end luxury. Yeah, I mean, this was a high-end multi-brand boutique. Uh, you, know, you had to kind of wait at the door. It was kind of one in, one out. Look, Bond Street has a reputation for being amongst the snobbiest places to shop on the planet. Let's be honest. The Richard Mille Boutique appeared to have precisely no watches in it. At least the Rolex Boutiques had watches that you couldn't buy in it. Richard Mille appeared to be completely empty. Uh, maybe had a couple of magazines. Okay, l- let me let me just say this as a strategy. Back when watch stores had full windows, they noticed that nobody appeared to want to buy their watches because it felt like it wasn't <laughs> precious or exclusive or hard to get. But when they started having empty windows, they recognized that people, whether accurately or fallaciously, believed that their products were harder to get. And thus, if you didn't buy something that was available, your chance to buy anything at all would go away. And I wonder, as supply chains recover and watches become more available, what this is going to be like. Are we going to return to fully stocked windows that has everything but no real incentive to buy? Or are we going to continue to see some type of strange game or or exclusivity ritual where there's scarcity and, and it's unclear exactly what is available and what isn't and how to get it but i feel like the industry got so addicted to this they're going to try to hold on to this scarcity game for as long as possible yeah well there certainly wasn't a lot that you could purchase or even look at by the way of of rolex and there certainly appeared to be precisely zero in the richard mule department if you were wishing to spend that kind of money Uh, most of their boutiques and brands to be fair were all pretty decent Met a few folk that I knew in various points, but uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a good experience, and it was it was a nice a nice afternoon wandering around the watch stores in London. But I can highly recommend, uh, and don't all go in at once. But I can highly recommend the experience in Lang and Zona. Don't go on it was it's quite a wee store, so so maybe not just all. But actually, what to do? Form a queue outside and see what happens. Oh, did also go into the Swatch Boutique. 
just to stand and listen to the people still coming in asking about Moonswatch. There were two big burly security guards standing next to the Moonswatch display, turning folk around who were asking when they were coming back in stock and how long they'd need to wait. Interesting. Just just let me say something about the Moonswatch because I, f- I found something interesting that you, uh-huh. you might find interesting. On the dial of my Moonswatch, it says Swatch a- AG or AG. 2021 and that's telling me that it's a it's a 2021 manufacturing date and i was just wondering what if they produced a certain number of these and said oh yeah we'll you know we'll promote these and just get it out there uh, you know drive the attention at the moon watch and and hype it up a little bit and see what happens and now they are having to scramble and bring it back into production i'm not saying that that is what has happened but i feel like it could be, because if you look at the extremely limited number of places where you could buy these for the extremely limited amount of time, and in the quantities that these stores receive, like 100, 120 watches per store, it, it might have been a few thousand, like maybe a 10,000 or 15,000 production run. And they called it a day back in 2021, and then, you know, the launch got postponed for COVID or whatever. And now they're they're finding themselves in a situation where... You know, they are trying to figure out, like, okay, how do we bring this back into production, which is extremely difficult to do once you have tooled your machines up for something completely different, right? Wouldn't that be a possibility? Absolutely. And I think it would be interesting to hear from anyone that's got a moon swatch that says 2022 on it. So can anybody Mm. out there send us a photo? Just email us. Email me, rick at ablogtowatch.com with the photo of any moon swatch that on the dial says 2022 because i think david you probably do have a point Hmm. that a lot of these were produced clearly last year and then they got caught with the hype i mean i've never seen a swatch store so busy Uh, i mean it's difficult to compare the swatch stores in scotland to the ones in oxford street or wherever they are but uh, the Swatch store was absolutely jumping, and that's not my memory of Swatch stores recently. Just a, a different possibility here. What David is saying might very well be the case. It's it's also possible that that indicator is related to a design date, and so it might be uh, related to a design protection of the dial, and that was the date that it may be registered. So if they have a different design that may be just, you know, registered later, it'll have a different date. So sometimes that date is not manufacturing date, but sometime when the design was registered just saying well tell us if you've got a uh, moon swatch that has 2022 on the dial so let's get on with some other watch chat the last week ariel saw a bremen release but also a bremen event and another event that i blogged to watch closely with tiso where there were also some launches so why don't you take us through just how the events went. Absolutely. We had a remarkable amount of people from the Blog to Watch audience in Southern California come out to our dual events. First was Bremont at their new store, which is the first non-London location of a place called the Bike Shed Moto Co., where you can go and buy a motorcycle, get a haircut, get a tattoo. There's a private members club, a restaurant, clothing, and you can buy Bremont watches. Parking is more challenging if you don't come in a motorcycle, which most of us... <laughs> Did not, but it was really cool to see this sort of alternative retail environment for a brand like Bramont that fits in it well. Um, they did not have their limited edition Bamford watch, which was sad to everyone, but I did get to see it 
when I was visiting George Bamford in London. So that's a really cool one. Um, hopefully they'll send me one of those because even those those are all sold out. I think they did a really cool job there. As you mentioned, the third version of their Jaguar uh, collaboration watches came out, which was the C-Type. About $6,400, so definitely about half the price of the original collaboration watch, which was, I think, about $12,000. This is a chronograph. It's really, really legible. There's uh, a nice rotating bezel on there. It's actually what I like from Bremont a lot because it's just a good classic looking sports watch. This one, of course, you know, motorsports themed or, you know, Jaguar C type themed, which is this, you know, you know, vintage sports car. So I think that it's actually one of those sleeper hits. It's going to become more popular over time, a little bit in contrast to some of the brand's more art artistic collaborations, which is more about capturing emotion. This is just sort of a nice all-purpose motorsports themed sports watch with a classic edge to it. So that was great. Moving on, we did an event at the local watch store here, Feldmar, that a blog to watch has had a long positive relationship with. We did an event with Tiso watches. Uh, Feldmar has been one of the best places to buy all Swatch Group brand watches for the most part, all the way up to Breguet in the world. I really don't know too many other stores that have such a great relationship. So Tiso chose to do with us this really big event there and just a lot of watches that no one had seen before. New versions of the Gentleman, new versions of the the Sea Star, new versions of their Moto GP watch, things for the cycling, and of course PRX, which is the you know really the star of the show, the 35 mil millimeter model which is surprisingly popular a lot of people like wearing it with long sleeves it looks a little bit bigger than it sounds new automatic models there's a version that we talked about on a blog to watch but i hadn't seen before which was again it's kind of a funny watch but it has appeal it reminds us of like Rolex Oyster Quartz because it's the PRX case with the solid gold fluted bezel, kind of like a Rolex. It's the mechanical version of the PRX. How cool. Those are neat. <laughs> Those are neat. And they're not that expensive. They're like uh, 1700 bucks or maybe 1500 bucks, even with this 18 karat gold bezel, which is really cool. They cost less than an upgrade to a fluted gold bezel. <laughs> yeah, <those>. yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the star of the show was the PRX automatic that has this ETA uh, automatic mechanical chronograph movement. 1750 bucks. What a great watch. Slightly larger PRX case, about 42 millimeters wide. Two different dials, sort of a silver one and a blue one. I mean, great quality. You know, uh, it's like, you know, spend $30,000 on like a Vacheron Constantin overseas chronograph or 1750 on something that gives you more or less all the same joy just a great fantastic thing great turnout sold a lot of watches that night actually tisa was super happy yeah uh that's that's the recap and so so you're particularly impressed with the pr was that the first time you'd actually got to try one on yeah for the the automatic uh, chronograph for sure i mean you know we launched it with them this was the first time anyone could actually buy it uh those right. watches we took so uh, actually, Ed from the Blog to Watch team has them right now for some video work we're doing. So we're going to be able to cover those editorially. But I'm just going to tell you, like a lot of people, like if you like that type of watch and you want sort of a, 
integrated steel sort of sports watch chronograph like it's really hard to pass that up and your preference the blue or the white it's just personal preference you know it's just it's they're both really nice i wouldn't say one's better than the other i think if you sort of like want to do it a little bit more dressy the blue because people wear like blue suits and things like that it's a little bit more darker uh the other one is a little just more sporty it just depends what you want to go they're both really good options i i think tiso is going to come out with more of them i hope they do cool and while i normally have a go at you what over the Atlantic for murdering the British language, you do say the word Jaguar in a particularly epic way. <laughs> Jaguar. Jaguar. The name Jaguar, I'm pretty sure, is from the Americas originally. All right, okay, you're claiming it, are you? I, I think it was maybe, was it maybe there before, you know, white settlers kind of conquered? Yeah, yeah. It was way before there was a British car manufacturer. Yeah, way before the British car manufacturer. So. <laughs> I- <laughs> I'm not normally a fan of putting logos on watches from, you know, collabs, but actually this is fair, this is subtle enough to get away with it. And the design of watch that they've used for the Bremen is very similar to the Bremen Boeing from a number of years ago. I think it's the same sort of case. It's, it's a lovely watch. Oh, the Boeing. I remember that one. That was actually yeah. a very different. Both 43 millimeters, but that was one of the yeah. weirder watches. I like that one. I think that was a sleeper hit. Big fan of the Boeing. Big fan of this watch. They are solid, solid pieces of engineering. And, and this is quite pretty. And as you say, for a chronograph, it's pretty legible, unlike many other chronographs we could mention. And the case back with the... Give us, give us another Jaguar. 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 No, that's a cool, like the emblem. That is a that is an impressive case back. You actually prefer yeah. that than a display case back to see the movement. I've saw I saw yeah. people's like eyes open up. They're like, whoa, it's cool. That's a proper case back. If you're gonna do a showy off a case back, then this is the way to do well, it. Well what this I is, learned that was cool. interesting is that Bremont had spent all these years perfecting doing like military emblems and stuff like that that's where they got the ability to do that there were, there's not just some company that's able to do that so this is because they did trial and error for military emblems for years yeah they've got this division which only produce watches in limited runs for for the military they claim it's 20 percent of their business well, that would not surprise me if it's if it's at least that so there we go go check out the bremen article on a blog to watch and will we be seeing recaps of the events on a blog to watch will we be seeing articles about them yes yes we will so just the other day i was in zurich with breitling visiting an event that they organized for the launch of the breitling Navitimer cosmonauts so just a few months ago i think it was about two months ago they launched the redesigned Navitimer for the 70th anniversary of the collection which is kind of cool if you think about it. It's been around for 70 years, not that many collections available still today, virtually and largely unchanged over the course of seven decades. And this time around, they told the story of this 24-hour dial Novi Timer, which we have seen over the years here and there. But it is only now that I really could learn about the story in depth and why that came to exist. And so the story goes that Scott Carpenter, who is a NASA astronaut, reached out to Breitling. He actually brought on NASA letterhead to Willie Breitling to ask for a 24-hour dial watch. On stage were George Kern, the CEO of Breitling, of course, but there was also Scott Kelly, who is uh, an astronaut who spent about a year on the International Space Station, so he knows a thing or two about being in space. And there were the sons and the daughter of Scott Carpenter. Primarily, his daughter was like super into these stories and 
she and and Carpenter wrote a book back in the day about his experiences with NASA and spaceflight and all that. And Carpenter was among the first to experience weightlessness and do various kinds of experiments, because at the time when he was launched into space in 1962, exactly 60 years to date before this event in Zurich, they didn't even know if you could digest in space, if you ate like a candy bar, like could you sustain life for like days and weeks? Could you eat there? Could you drink there? They didn't know how liquid behaved in space and weightlessness, etc. And so when he was chosen by NASA out of 500 military test pilots, they narrowed it down through a number of rounds to basically just him. He immediately wrote to Breitling because he liked the Navi timer and they told the story why he did that, but that's beside the point now. And he said, oh, can you make me a 24-hour dial? And Scott Kelly said that this was done because in space everything is about redundancy. And so, because I was wondering, why would you need, and because, you know, many people would say like, oh, he needed a 24-hour dial because when you're in space, you don't, you cannot really tell a.m. from p.m., right? So that's, that's kind of weird. But Carpenter's space flight was only five hours long. So you don't really need a 24-hour dial if you go into space for five hours. You can go anywhere. And I believe you could still potentially keep track of time, even though, and this is, I think, pretty cool, uh, Kelly said that there are 16 sunsets and sunrises in space in a day. So that's enough to com- to get you confused. But still, as I learned, it was so that the Brightling Novitimer cosmonaut would act as a backup for the onboard clock, because obviously NASA uses military time. Because, you know, if it was like a.m. and p.m., whatever, no, it's like 20.07, that's 8.07 p.m. And so it was, it was about redundancy. And when he came back, Carpenter came back from space, some modules failed and he had to manually land and he missed the landing spot by like 200 nautical miles or something. And he was upside down in the ocean. And as he was trying to turn around and escape from the capsule and then turn it around and all that, his watch got exposed to seawater. And other timers are not... I don't know if people know this, but they are not water resistant. They say three bar, but that's nothing, basically. And for the redesign, they told me that they tried to make it water resistant, but water resistant, but they couldn't because as you turn the bezel, you know, you're operating the slide rule and that operates the flange ring, which is inside and just above the dial. And it's basically impossible to make it waterproof without making it 20 millimeters thick. And so his watch got exposed to seawater and it oxidized terribly. It's beyond recognition, basically. And that watch has been in the personal collection of the Breitling family for 60 years and it was never shown. And it was this time that someone from the Breitling family exhibited it for this event. And we could go hands-on with it and we could see it. And at the time, Carpenter was given another 24-hour dial Navi timer, which is still with the family. So we could see both his watches, the one that went into space and then uh, oxidized terribly, and then the watch that he's, he's worn ever since. So it was a really cool event, lots of stuff happening, even though it was like 90 minutes, but even in that scope of time, we could learn so much. And again, we could see a new Navi timer that you can read about on a blog to watch. So some questions. So on the article, there's a watch case and it's obviously got a cover on it. So what is it I'm looking at? If you go to the blog to watch article, it looks like a... Oh, the orange? Yeah, the orange stone or something. That's his watch. That's the oxidized. You're looking at the oxidized movement and, and dial. Right, so that's actually... That's all rust. Right, that's just the it's So rust. They, made, they made jewelry out of it. Yeah, because it looks like it's almost bejeweled. It looks like they've taken the watch movement out and put some sort of onyx or something. It's not like they they made the jewellery out of it. It's just that's what it looks like. (laughs) Cool. And so there's that watch, and then there's the one that he, the family were given by NASA. 
you're seeing. Yes, so the carpenter himself was given a new watch by Freiling at the time, and that was also present. But the one that you see here with the orange dial and or orange crystal, that has that stretchy bracelet on it. So that bracelet was stretchy so that it would fit over the spacesuit. So that actual watch went into space. It just looks terrible because it was exposed to, to seawater. So overall, very cool watch with a very cool story and a relatively high price at 11800 I think it was. Yeah, eleven thousand two hundred on the on the on the bracelet. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the of the Cosmonaut. I love the twenty four hour time display. I just think it's weird and weird and wacky, and I quite like that sort of thing. Are yeah, you? yeah, exactly. What, what what do you think about twenty four hour dials? You know, that sounded like a very leading question, David. <laughs> 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 I think when you see the watch, for me, I'm not like, oh, that'll help me do something. Like, especially living in America. Where we don't even keep 24-hour time, like it's a weird thing. Like in Europe and other parts of the world, you keep time like that more. So I can see myself in a country that that uses time like that, where wearing a watch like this would be helpful because my phone would tell normal 12-hour time, and if my watch told 24-hour time, it would be more helpful when everyone's like, "Hey, see you at 1700," and I'm like, "Um," and I have to do math in my head. So I actually would take this watch and wear it on adventures in Europe and other places where you use the 24-hour clock more because I actually think it would be useful then. But where I live in, here in America, you know, it's more like a novelty. Right. So that's a no from Ariel. No, I like it. I'm saying I do that. I go to Europe. That's I would actually review it in that in that circumstance because, you know, we like to see these as tools. So I actually thought of a very practical situation where this would be a useful tool. Uh, yeah, in the article I say that in America this is known as military time, but in Europe we know it as time. <laughs> because <laughs> for us, like 2007, we, we know what that is. It, it's not military time, you know? It's just... It's just because your military is so small. Oh! <laughs> oh <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah, right, okay. Let's, let's, not, let's not go there. But next year's Watches and Wonders, we're gonna any time we speak to Ariel, David, we're gonna refer to it as military time. So anytime we're looking to everyone's got to speak military time to Ariel. A block to watch is now. It's perfect time. because we've always considered going to these trade shows like attending war. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I think we, we, we begin the campaign now to get it into everybody's brain that next year anyone in Europe that speaks to Ariel has to speak to him in military time just so that he has to do the sums in his head. Just so that he buys the Breitling with a 24-hour dial yeah, now. You're only allowed to sell Ariel watches if they have a 24-hour time I have I have uh, the Raketa versions of those. I'm, I'm, you know, oh, right, they, okay. I think they copied it or something. There's not a lot of these. I was surprised that this is a limited release. Like, is there something going to follow on from this? There's only 300... Oh, from the Cosmonaut? Yeah, there's only 362 pieces. It struck me that this yeah. was the sort of watch that would be a general release, or is there something a bit more special about it that means you would only... I mean, there's more than 360 Breitling boutiques in the world, surely. So there's not even going to oh, be yeah. what there's not even going to be. I feel one like George just wanted them to all sell now. You know, it's it's sort of like crack when they do yes. limited edition. It kind of hurts them in the long run, but it does if you do it appropriately. Get orders now, so they're like, "Hey, we want a few million. Okay, make a cool limited edition. We got this story." It, it, that's exactly what I was going yeah. to say. It's four million in the bank right yeah. there. That's okay. it. Well, I think that's a shame because so is is there a twi is that the only current issued 24-hour time display by Breitling. Is there another one elsewhere I in the range? I think other than maybe maybe you could set up like an aerospace EU or something like that with a digital display that they, uh, if they're still making those, you could 
potentially set those up. But yeah, or are we about to are we about to see a route taken out of the Omega Speedmaster route, and every time there's something to celebrate in space, we're going to see another twenty four hour Brightling release. Yeah, but it's still. I mean, I mean, they kind of own this in the sense that this was the first Swiss wristwatch in space. Which is kind of cool, right? And they own this and they got there because the Navi timer at the time was so cool. Because Carpenter was setting some things up, or I don't know, working for NASA in, I think, in Australia or someplace. And that's where he encountered the Navi timer in 61, at least the, the family tells his story. And it's got to be a pretty damn cool watch. And, and he actually knew how to use a slide rule, which I guess could not be said about all Navi timer <laughs> owners these days. <laughs> But but it was a cool tool and, and a great product. And so uh, here we are. It's sort today. of like Perfect. every time Breitling decides they want to tell the story, they get to make a limited edition. So they have these stories. They can return to this story every couple of years. And it's sort of like if they mm-hmm. don't make it a limited edition, they have to continue to tell the stories, i.e. have an advertising campaign. And we know they can't do that quite yet. Very good point. This is a story that I wrote piece on, and we're going to have another one soon coming up, maybe by the time you hear this, that we'll talk more about a selection of the pieces. The Oak Collection was a selection of 168, we'll call them auction house darlings, um, <laughs> and they represent a, a portion of the collection of watches owned by a, a very nice gentleman named Mr. Patrick Jetrid. He's a, a French national who for several decades has been collecting a litany of fine watches, many of them at auction, including certain special auctions like the only watch auction that has one-of-a-kind things. He has his particular tastes. Uh, he likes what he likes. He likes things in perfect condition. Uh, he has sort of this fascination with watches uh, like those produced for uh, Henry Graves Jr. by Patek Philippe, which he owns many of those, which are uh, m- many millions of dollars each. So this collection was um, an, incre- an incredible museum-style exhibit into truly uh, a selection of incredibly fine watches. Uh, but like art, it would represent only one segment. It would be like, this is, you know, uh, impressionism, or this is sort of like, um, you know, uh, landscapes or something like that. It wasn't, this is all of, of art. It was sort of one particular genre. And it was interesting for that. And I think he's trying to do more of them. I think he would love it if collectors put stuff like this together. He put a lot of his own money into it. He claims to have no commercial interest, and you can really read more uh, about the Oak Collection and the collector, as he's known. He likes to be known uh, as that. He's sort of a discreet guy. But this was his first time doing interviews. In fact, I was his very first interview. There will be a podcast uh, with him coming soon, which um, I think is actually quite quite enjoyable. So this exhibition went for a week at the Design Museum in London. And the goal is for it to be a traveling exhibition. New York City is supposed to be the next planned venue. We don't know exactly when that's going to be. But the idea is it's going to travel around. And what I recommended to the family is that they consider doing a permanent museum. And their question to me was, great, where? And maybe people have suggestions, where? And I think that 
if the watch industry truly wants to create new legacy today, it needs to have these real brick-and-mortar museums. Some in Switzerland to things like horology, but in other parts of the world to other elements, uh, such as design and innovation, materials, manufacturing, popularity, whatnot. So an interesting trend, maybe sort of a one-shot deal in terms of uh, one gentleman's passions and his, his conce conception of what needs to be done. But if collectors invested more of their money into the industry itself, I think that could be a good thing for the future of the watch industry. I mean, I think Glasgow is the obvious location. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Clearly, clearly. So, Or Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> what was the point in this? Why has this guy collected watches for this long and then decided, you know what, now I'm going to tell everybody about them? We go over that in, in the article and in my interview with him. I think the simple answer is that He's nearing a point where he recognizes that the accumulation of his watches means nothing unless he tells a story. Like, if he passes away and you just see his watches, he owns a bunch of watches that may have popularity unto themselves, but the collection and why they're all owned by one person doesn't exist. And he, and again, you can say it's an egotistical thing, but at the end of the day, it is part of what makes culture and helps people understand art and aesthetic and uh, men, you know, men and women's passions for things. He wants the Jet Reed collection to be something that you think of, that you want to go visit that, that you can learn about the world through that lens or one slice of the world through that lens. He wants his collection to mean something to his heirs. He wants them to have something. I mean, they have plenty of money, but he wants the collection to be more than just, oh, these were these were dad's watches, his timepieces. Yes, he enjoyed them. Let's sell them one at a piece or the whole, th whole, the whole lot. He wants part of his legacy to be the many, many years and hours and hours of dedication he put into this. And I think it's interesting when you have accomplished business people like that, they, they, they desire to sort of narrow what they've done into certain slices, and that's what they want people to remember them by. And they try to make it a flattering thing or the thing that they think is something they want to pass on. And he has decided that he wants to pass on his love of watches uh, in one particular way. We see these uh, great men and women put in money to architecture and art and projects and brands and companies and everyone's asking why and they're, they're just trying to make a mark. They're trying to make a mark and I think that's actually what you should do if you have a bunch of money. You shouldn't just sit there and do nothing with it. Yeah, there is possibly my favorite photo of you <laughs> In any article I've ever seen you looking like uh -oh. <laughs> looking like the boy in a candy shop in this in the article on the website. So yeah, go and check out uh, the photo actually of Ariel staring longingly at the pocket watches. Yeah, was was there a, was there a favourite? I mean, did you have a particular? I mean, there's a lot of Pateks here. I'm not a big Patek. I kind of you know. I take him or leave him. I mean, I take him if there were an offer. But I like how he tests watches mercilessly, uh -huh. and so he says that he's frequently swimming with Patek Philippe watches, not just Nautiluses and Aquanuts, but uh -huh. even watches like anything that says water resistant. He will swim in, including minute repeaters. Right. He Excellent. was wearing an advanced research minute repeater, the new one that's supposed to be water resistant. Can you imagine when when word reaches the manufacturer, like okay? We have to make this one actually water resistant because they make like a, a few of them and they know like, okay, they're not going to, but this is going to that guy that's <laughs> in it. So we actually have to make it. Oh, he's the type of guy that gets really overjoyed to send them back when they're broken. He's like, I did it again. <laughs> yeah, fix water it. Yeah, water damage is kind of... <laughs> <laughs> no, he pays. <laughs> he doesn't care. He doesn't care. I mean, look, he's, oh, okay. he's spending... 
enormous sums of money. I don't think a couple of like repair things are going to stop him in his tracks. <laughs> I mean, okay, this cool. is a half a billion dollars worth of watches, surely. Effectively, there's there's five hundred. I mean, a hundred. I mean, yeah. 160 just the displayed ones yeah that's what i was gonna say so how many how big is the total collection versus what he actually put on display do we know very few collectors would actually admit that Uh uh-huh okay (laughs) It, it it becomes a point like asking someone how many partners they slept with like it's just not an appropriate question to ask an adult so i a lot of people asked him that that's a funny thing like that was a very common question and i was around him a lot and i heard multiple people ask him and he would again i wouldn't want to answer either but sometimes he would say a few hundred which is not true i mean let's be honest it's gonna be it's gonna be more than that you just do the math you know he would say to me for example like oh i went to patek and bought six watches if he's doing that every couple of months you know for (laughs) for 40 years so i'm just saying that the the depth of his collection is going to remain private he's made it clear that he's made a bunch of off-wall purchases and some things that were just very inexpensive watches he just liked i mean i'm sure he's just got a bunch of schlock lying around as well he's made it clear that he just gets joy out of buying watches for himself i'm sure for others and you know bless individuals like that really yeah i I do want to know if he has a garage full of g-shocks like can he walk through an airport if you've got a watch collection like this can you spend any time in an airport and not buy a swatch watch or whatever else they're selling a a bunch of g-shocks just because it's you know, forty dollars. I want to know if actually he's got like I don't know a shed full of Casios Timexes. What if he has zero of them? Like actually zero cars. <laughs> yeah. Well, when he comes to Glasgow, you can ask him, right? Well, that's a that's a really good question, David. Imagine managing to go through your whole life and only buy expensive watches. Not just just gift him one. I think we should send him a cheese shock. Like, hey, you know, th- there's this coveted watch that people adore the world over, and you don't yet have it. Here, take a fifty six hundred series cheese shock. I think you need to take one for the team, David, and send him your moon swatch. <laughs> no, <laughs> money where your mouth well, is. How very generous of you. <laughs> I love giving away other people's stuff. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I can certainly see that. <laughs> I think I think I think you should send him. Your moon swatch that'd be the only only the fair thing to do so well, I, i'll sleep on that <laughs> so what was your was there a favorite watch you saw here ariel one that you were like yeah or not so much maybe even a favorite watch but a watch you're glad you saw um you know the thing is that i've been doing this long enough that i've seen some of these watches when they come out before they become super popular and i remember seeing some of the more modern day Patek Philippe's like the 5270 he had a bunch of those I think those are amazing I'm not like a prolific Patek Philippe fan but there are things that I like for sure he's a mega fan I mean this you know that's one thing to say like if you want to see like a mega fans like like super celebration of a, of a company he likes this is a this is a Patek Philippe you know maniacs you know shrine to his love um it's it's really hardcore um, and, and, and people are into that, you know, people are into that. So there's a lot of cool watches in there, modern Patek Philippe's, complicated ones. I mean, if you, if you want vintage, he's got tons of vintage stuff. But th- these are things that like, they're, they're just, they're auction house darlings, you know, 2499s and stuff like that, um, that, you know, they're just, they're, vin- I don't know, they're, they're, they're cool, but you can't ever get one. It, no one's going to be like, oh, I'm going to see one in a little store somewhere and get one and enjoy it. Like, no, they're all like in the millions. So it's sort of like um, 
a kind of frustrating flirtation, right? Um, I, I, it, it, it's sad that no one can go in there and then go to a watch store down the street. I was actually joking that like the closest you could do is go to a Longines store and get something that, that kind of looks like one of these old Pateks, which is kind of true. <laughs> Here's an interesting thing to think about. I don't know exactly how prolific he is, but I heard a range, and I don't know, it's kind of a big range, but this is the range of people who have collections like Patrick in terms of the size, importance, value. I'm not exactly sure how they're defining it, but but the number of individuals that have collections this big is somewhere between about five and six hundred. Again, it's it's a big range, but it's not like five and six thousand. So we know that that at most there's several hundred people maybe just under a thousand that have, you know, watch collections in the potentially hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. at the high end. And at the low end, like five people. Yeah. And so does it really matter if Patek have any stock in their boutiques? If there's like 600 people that they can guarantee to sell anything they make to? Yeah, we'll just, mm. just 200 of these because we're all going to go to... That's not enough money for them. And remember, these individuals still like it that there's a mainstream out there that knows the brand and that, you know, some bankers have basic Calatravas and stuff like that. Oh, uh, the, the poor bankers with our basic Calatravas. <laughs> Hamilton this week released what I think is a bit of an unusual watch. This is the Hamilton updated Khaki Navy Frogman automatic watch. I quite like the look of this, but I don't understand how... Well, they've produced like one that's really legible and one that's completely illegible as a dive watch. What is going on here? What is the history of this particular release from Hamilton? Did not read the notes. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we're all really well prepared. Uh, let, me, let me see here. I mean, the, the Frogman is just a collection they've done for a while, you know... They're trying to channel here. This is not a brand new theme here. I've seen substantially similar stuff. You're channeling your sort of inner Panerai with the sort of size, simplicity, yeah. different kind of crown guard system. We've seen similar stuff before on, on other things. You know, what what I call this is it's youth, youthful, masculine, very assertive looking, right? It's very strong, like says like, I'm here to conquer. Swatch Group is a very patriarchal masculine company like they love making stuff like this they love the idea of people wearing stuff like this this for me is like the type of watch that the swatch group absolutely relishes in making and this frogman as you point out it has this kind of panerai vibe but that's not the way that the crown guards have always worked that is a new from what i can tell that's a fairly new way of them doing the crown guard. I mean, it, it looks like a Panerai crown guard, very close to it. Well, it doesn't operate the same way, but this is more uh, a guard that it doesn't break off or something. It's This operates more like the Ploprof uh, crown yes. system. Yes, whereas the previous Hamilton Frogman, it was very much more of a kind of, well, what would it be more similar to? Maybe more similar to the kind of design that Ball use. Well, it's a clamp. Dive watch. It was a clamp rather than a than this, which looks more like the the clasp that. Uh, that but the Panerai the Panerai just... never actually relied on the clasp for water resistance in any modern sense. It was always gasket based. The clamp was just a, a trade dress thing. It's just you know, so you saw that from across the room, like that's a Panerai. Yeah, absolutely. And as a Panerai wearer, we all quite like that. Yeah, this this uh this Hamilton is a surprisingly chic 
effort at doing a non-standard sports watch. It's a dive watch for sure. You know, everyone likes this, uh, a dive watch and a steel bracelet. Everyone likes what's legible. You know, it's not going to be to everyone's taste, but this is a this is a handsome watch. I actually think that on a strap, it looks like it comes on a rubber strap as well. Yeah, yeah. That's fun. I don't understand this black dial. Not my thing at all. This sort of phantom thing with the orange. It looks like a fashion play. I'm sure some people will get it. I would just like to see this in some other colors. I feel like they probably had a bunch of other more standard colors. You know, maybe maybe both the hands are the same color. I'm not always a massive fan of the orange minute hand. I know some people like it, but this is for people that like really get excited about an orange minute hand. Blacked out ones very reminiscent of the Tenet watch that they produced the with the blue and the red hand completely illegible and also looks a bit looks a bit like a panorama hamilton has tried to do the phantom look so many times and not succeeded some brands can do it amazing bell and ross always gets away with doing a phantom look they're legible you're not perfect Hamilton, just bless him. It's not the first time. Some of the khaki ones, oh boy. I think 46, it would be interesting to try one of these on because 46 mil wide is, you know, it's a big watch. 1,200 quid for it on a bracelet. It's not a bad, not a bad gig for a big slab of steel that's an entirely capable watch that has a has a bit of fashion, fashion sense behind it, I think. I think you're right. I think it is quite an attractive looking thing 300 meters water resistant i think the blacked out one is cool looking completely useless as a watch and absolutely useless as a dive watch other than being water resistant so you know it would have survived the mercury 7 and would not have oxidized i i think hamilton right now is a fantastic watch uh for a young male uh there's a lot of good watches across different types of styles for someone in that age range, you know, they're not the only brand that has good stuff at that price point, but I think that it's, it's, they got a lot of interesting stuff there. So I think if you're a more accomplished watch buyer, there isn't a lot of reasons to go back. Tissot right now has more reasons to sort of go back to a lower price point, right? Uh, the PRX because it's cooler, or maybe the Heritage Chronographs because just a nice design. Hamilton is still very much for an aspirational or an emerging uh, luxury customer, which very oftentimes is someone who's younger. Cool. David, any final thoughts from you? Not on the Hamilton now. Or anything else for that matter. Because <laughs> <laughs> Hamilton made David fall asleep. He heard Frogman, soothing ribbits. He went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that is our show for this week. Uh, what's everyone up to in the next uh, day or so? What's everyone got to look forward to, Ariel? I might need to rely on David for next week because I'm going to be driving back from Northern California. I'm going for a family wedding and then I'm home for a few days. And then I'm going to be going to Las Vegas. And then I'm and then I might have to come back in the very next day, go to New York City for a Zenith event. And what sort of watch does Ariel Adams wear to a wedding? What should I wear? What do you recommend? David, you know me. What should I wear? Oh, something with diamonds on it. No, I have some stuff with diamonds on it. What do I have with diamonds on? Yeah. That or a new new bail. Yeah. A new bail? Maybe a new bail with diamonds on it. Yeah. Nobody would be able to appreciate it. That's the th- that's the point. And uh, David, what are you up to? Uh, so next week, uh, I'll, I'll be away. Birthday surprise trip. Yeah. Uh, your birthday is it a significant one or just one with a? Every birthday is a significant one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's thirty three. Uh, so so 
so that's that's a nice number mine's later mine's later in june and then uh there's a few other birthdays yeah. as well yeah exactly so so that's why i'm traveling i don't even have plans for my birthday i wanted to go to japan but they're still not open they're still shut are they what yeah i want to go to okinawa i can't believe that it's that's so crazy. cheap there you can get a whole house on the beach for under $300 a night. Wow, so nice. I did research to like to dozens and dozens of cities and seen what it costs on the beach. For 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 like what you get Okinawa is an incredible value, great weather, safe, Japan, and there's and they speak English. Our beach holidays in Scotland are really cheap as well. Uh <laughs> especially in the winter. Yeah, yeah. Plenty so, some of the best beaches in the world in Scotland. Hypothermia Nothing shores. Like Scottish beach in November. <laughs> you do any Google of best beaches in the world, and I guarantee you some will come up that are from Scotland. Oh, for sure. I'm sure they're beautiful, but I literally look for warm swimming water where I won't die in jagged rocks. It's hailing horizontally <laughs> into your face <laughs> while you are appreciating the beauty of the, of the beach. That's the problem. Yeah, d- don't wear a bright wing is all I'm saying. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, that's our Good show point. for this week. Thank you for joining us. Oh, shout out to Ryan Reynolds, by the way. And- <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye, Bye everyone. Ryan.